Hey friends, I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, you're listening to Lighting a Fire. Journalism is about what happened, but literature is about, and, and stories are about what happens. This is what happens in the human heart. This is what happens in the human experience. This conversation is brought to you by Kelvin Theological Seminary. Kelvin Sem offers a wide range of online courses and programs, including a certificate in Bible instruction specifically tailored for teachers. To learn more, head on over to kelvinseminary.edu. Today, I had the real privilege of talking with Sarah Arthur, author of over a dozen books on faith formation, many at the intersection of faith and story including The God-Shaped Imagination and her newest book, A Light So Lovely, The Spiritual Legacy of Madeline Langle, author of A Wrinkle in Time. Join us for a conversation around the question, what does imagination have to do with the Christian faith? Sarah is just an absolute joy to talk with, and I think you'll really be encouraged by her insight into the power of imagery, imagination, and storytelling. So Sarah, I remember years ago, I was, I think I was a ninth grader, I was reading The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and I was, a teacher walked by and he said, why are you wasting your time reading something that's not even true? Uh, how would you respond to something like that? Is story or fiction a waste of time? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can track that teacher down right now. Uh, and you know, um, I should I should say I think he was being provocative. I think uh-huh, he was trying uh-huh. to push me because I, yeah. I know him, and I don't think he was being as as critical as the question. Right, right. Well, I can't remember if it was Leland Riken, one of my professors at Wheaton College, or maybe in something I read by Madeline Langle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time, who was she was a person of faith as well. Um, you know, journalism is about what happened. You know, reading the news is about what happened. And of course, there's a spin on on all kinds of, you know, writing, but but it attempts to at least address what happened. A journal, writing down what happened in your day. That's what happened. But literature is about and, and stories are about what happens. This is what happens in the human heart. This is what happens in the human experience. And and so it is still true even if it is not factual. Um, and so like we think about when Jesus tells a parable, let's say he tells the parable of the father and his two prodigal sons. And I would insist that both of them are prodigals. He like, this is, he's not giving us a journalistic account of something he witnessed the day before. <laughs> he laid down the night before he told this story, let's imagine, and around the fire, maybe his he and his disciples are on the road, so they're camping out. And he's lying there under the stars, and he's hearing the disciples snoring around him. And he's thinking to himself, how can I express what happens between the father and the, the children he loves? Hmm. How, can I, how can I express that? And I see him smiling under the stars and saying, I've got a story. And so the next day he tells a story. Um, And it's, 
and it's a story that is true, even though it's not based on factual events that he witnessed between actual fathers and sons. But these are the kinds of things that happen between fathers and sons, and they are the kinds of things that happen between God and the children he loves. Mm. This, is, this is what happens, and that is what stories do, and that is what Jesus was about in telling his parables. Wow. And so oh, where is that teacher? Let me at him. <laughs> Let me at him. I mean, who's going to uh, shut down what the Holy Spirit is doing? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I'm enjoying this very much, Sarah. <laughs> All right. Mom hey, ain't playing. I am not playing. Uh, so, okay, let's let's elaborate on that a little bit. What is the relationship between conjuring an image or telling a story and communicating an idea? Mm-hmm. Um, are, those, are those opposed to one another? Are those doing separate things or do mm-hmm. they go together? Well, I mean, even an idea, like if you have an idea in your head, maybe to solve a problem, or maybe you have a fact about science that you want to express. Does that idea come to your mind in a line of type or text, like like words on a page? Or does it come to your mind within a whole, like a whole ecology of things, sounds and sights and memories and images in your head about bugs and insects, for instance, you're Mm. wanting to express something about the way bees work or the fact that bees are dying out. The things that happen in your brain as you're thinking about that are not just words and not just facts on a screen, like in Wikipedia. It It is a whole matrix of things happening in your brain at that moment. And images are actually probably chiefly what's happening and you are then finding words to express what your imagination is doing. Mm. So images, in fact, come first. And, and so like if you read about C.S. Lewis and his creation of the Chronicles of Narnia, it wasn't just that he had some idea to express about the nature of God and redemption. He was having dreams about lions. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he had an image of a fawn by a lamppost in the snow like it wasn't even a coherent narrative first it was images and that's Hmm. what happened first and then those began to cohere and come together his imagination began to stitch those things together into a pattern that had meaning and that is the function of the imagination sir i know you're a great lover of the bible in the god hungry imagination you gave several examples of how god communicates through this way as well, right? He doesn't just mm-hmm. give an idea. You told the story of Peter on the rooftop and, and all of a sudden he has this vision, right? Where there's animals and this sheet unfolds and mm-hmm. and God is communicating, not just an idea, but he's, he's doing it through the vehicle of image and story. Mm-hmm. That's incredible to me. And it's I, I sometimes fail to connect those dots that the scriptures are so very, I mean, just filled with images and stories and and. and it's not just saying, hey, here's some stuff you should believe. Yeah. It's not just the phone book. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. a repository of information. Yeah. So, you know, I think about, um, uh, so one of the things that we did, we were talking about when I was a student at, in seminary was that faith is actually kind of multi-tiered and, and there's primary practices of faith and then there's secondary discourse about faith. So the primary practices of faith are the things that are happening in worship 
are the practices in the home, are um, are the things that that are very primary. So prayer, Bible stories, the sacraments in worship, whatever those might be in a faith community, the singing, the worship itself, those are all primary practices. Even the creeds, if you're, if people are part of a creedal community, those are primary practices of those faith communities. And the secondary discourse is the theological discussion about those practices. It's Paul taking the stories of the gospels and then going deeper into them and, and, and creating, a, like mapping out the internal logic of the faith. First, like as educators and parents, we really have to emphasize those primary practices with children and teens especially, so that the secondary discourse makes sense to them. Because otherwise, because it's the primary practices that establish the meaning, why this matters to us, because it hits us at a level, a level deeper than our consciousness and our reason. Mm. And it's and, and too often, we are teaching children and teens what to believe about the Bible, rather than engaging them directly in those primary stories. You know, so they so they interact with the story of the prodigal son, and then we very quickly go to so what's the point? What is what are the three lessons we learn from this story? Instead of asking them, what did you notice? What do you wonder? And just allowing their their own um, engagement with the story for the Holy Spirit to work in ways where we are not foreclosing on what the story means hmm. first hmm. before they engage it personally. It makes me think of, I was driving, this is maybe a year ago, but my daughter was in the back seat. She's five now. And she said, uh, I love, I love Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I said, I said, oh, cool. But she said it like a little robotically in a way that I, I was just a little curious about. And I was like, okay, like, tell me about that. Like, why do you love Jesus? And she said, I love Jesus because he's God's son. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I and, love Jesus because and, he's yeah. God. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, okay, yeah, I believe that to be true, but I don't know that like someone being God's son is necessarily that doesn't like inspire my love for <laughs> right. that individual. Yeah, and Aww. and and, and she said it wasn't again, wrong, but no, there's no. a layer there of primal experience. Yeah, and that, and in contrast, yeah. at the time we were listening to again the Chronicles of Narnia. And as I was taking her to school one morning, she said, I can't wait to tell my friends about Aslan at school. <laughs> Having no idea that, you know, this this is really intentional by C.S. Lewis, that he's, yes. he's kind of subversively, subversively introducing us to Jesus. But yeah. um, I, just, I just held those in such contrast that here she was memorizing the, this kind of this factoid that she should, she should say yeah. Yeah. or regurgitate in a sense. But and then on the other hand, she was having this immersive experience with a character in a story and she was actually developing such a love for this character that yeah. she wanted to, to evangelize yeah, she wanted yeah. to share her love of Aslan with her friends. Right, right. Well, I think it's in the God Hungry Imagination. I don't think it's in, uh, in um, so my a more recent book of mine is A Light So Lovely, The Spiritual Legacy of Madeline Langle, um, who wrote The Wrinkle in Time. And um, no, I think it's in the God Hungry Imagination where I talk about um, when I was in college, I was involved in inner city ministry on the south side of Chicago, and there was a woman in the projects who loved the children, and she would put on this big, elaborate Easter 
banquet every year and um, she brought in all the Wheaton College students as a thank you for us coming in and working with the children weekly. And I remember I had one of the little girls was sitting on my lap because she, I had gotten to know her throughout the year and we were eating our meal. And I said to her, do you know why we celebrate Easter? Like, what is Easter about? And she said, no. And I could have said in that moment, well, it's about how God's son died for us. But instead I said, well, once there was a man named Jesus and I told her stories about Jesus and then how he was put on trial for crimes he didn't commit. And then he was executed, but death couldn't keep him down. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And she was like, oh! <gasps> mm. <laughs> so I told the story. And then I, she said, when I, when I was done, she said, tell it again. Mm. And so I told her again. And then when I was done, she said, tell her. And she pointed to the little girl sitting next to us. And I said, will you help me tell her? And together we told the story of Jesus and mm. the crucifixion and the resurrection. And again, the other little girl was like, whoa. And instead of giving her a line of doctrine, I told her the story. And this is what the gospels do, right? I mean, the, the, the four gospels are primary texts that are narrative. And we too often go too quickly to that secondary theological discourse of principles and precepts and doctrines before engaging the imagination in the stories themselves. Um, and that's exactly where Jesus meets us. He trusted stories. He trusted the Holy Spirit's use of stories through the parables. Why can't we trust the Holy Spirit's use of, of stories, especially the Gospels? You know, it wasn't even until a few years ago that I really realized that the Gospels very rarely communicate explicit theology in the sense that mm -hmm. I was so used to expecting, mm -hmm. you know, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, even that you just won't mm -hmm. find it in there. Instead, mm -hmm. there there's, you know, in his death, there's a curtain that tears or, yes, yeah. or the dead are raised. And I think it's Matthew's account or John pointing and saying, look, the lamb of God. Yes. All these are just so deeply image centric and, yep. and rooted yep. in story. And this is how the gospels communicate. It's not yep. until later on in the Bible that you have people who are doing what you, you know you would consider maybe more explicit theology, trying to explain right. or understand what, what that really meant or what was happening. Right. Right. The gospels yeah. actually don't deal with that a whole ton. Yeah. Well, and some of that, I mean, I, you know, and and we're wandering into controversial, you know, controversial territory here because some people could argue that then, well, if you rely solely on narrative and and the imagination, then you can develop incorrect ideas about who God and Jesus are, and and that is where the internal logic of of systematic theology provides a kind of framework that's helpful. But until you've engaged those stories in a, in as primary practices, like the 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 parameters of the theology are really just it's just sort of legalese like it doesn't it doesn't really matter it doesn't touch the heart but god created the imagination and his creation is good the things he created are good i think the holy spirit uses the imagination as the back door into our our hearts when our the front door of our of our intellect and reason is closed shut against him hmm. oh amen oh so true and that reminds me of conversations I on occasion have with parents who are anxious or just kind of this this fear that my kids, I teach high schoolers, that, that mm -hmm. the son, son or daughter is going to go off to college and 
leave the faith behind and, mm-hmm. and, and not mm-hmm. believe X, Y, and Z anymore. And uh, I, I often will say, you know, I'm actually not afraid of that. What I'm more afraid of is them walking away from the faith and nothing really changes. Yes. <laughs> right? right? I mean, it's like they, yeah. they don't think what they used to think, but life is pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. I think that happens when we have the intellectual ascent, but we haven't yeah. experienced, tasted, and seen who God is, which if I was to, you know, leave my belief that, that God is, is real behind, I, I would be left with nothing because I, you know, I've, at this point I've built my life yes. on this God, on this Jesus, but it's tragic to me to see, oh, I don't believe in that anymore. Life pretty much goes on yep. as it did before. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of that is because we have not emphasized to our children enough that faith is a way of life. And it's based on relationships with our Heavenly Father. Mm. And we are we are changed by this. It's it's a way of life. It's not a list of things to believe. Mm. That list comes secondary. You quote uh, Kendra Creasy Dean in saying, believing in God is not the issue. Believing God matters is the issue. Mm-hmm. How do you see story and imagination getting us there? Well, C.S. Lewis talks about the imagination as the organ of meaning. Right. So the, the intellect, so the organ being like how we have digestive organs and, and they have a certain purpose and the intellect is the, has to do with reason and the reason and the intellect have their purpose, but the imagination also has its purpose and its purpose is to help us make and discover meaning in the world. So for instance, you look up at the sky at night and there are stars and planets And it's just kind of this like chaos of, it's beautiful chaos, but it's just chaos. But it's the imagination that allows us to look at that and say, oh, look, isn't that interesting? That little cluster of stars kind of looks like, you know, a ladle or Mm -hmm. a cup with a long handle. Isn't that interesting? And here's another cluster of stars that kind of looks like a woman sitting on a chair. And it's the imagination that that discerns patterns and then attaches meaning to those patterns. And of course, as Christians, we know that the meaning is already there in the world God has created and in its God's meaning. And so in this journey as Christians, we're discovering God's meaning for the for the universe that we see and for our own lives and the place that we have in, in his ongoing story. But, you know, it's so like when I was I studied for a semester in Kenya, which is about two degrees south of the equator over in the eastern hemisphere. And I'd I'd never been there before. And one of the first days that I was there, one of the first nights I was there at Daystar University, I went up to the roof, which is where we did our laundry. And I looked up at the stars and I was so used to the northern hemisphere and the constellations that I recognize, I'm a, I love looking at the stars. I was so used to that, that when I looked up and did not see a single thing I recognized, I felt like I lost who I was, like that I had somehow landed on a different planet. I was like, I don't know what this is. It's chaos. And it was, <laughs> it was, it made me feel dizzy. And so, you know, we our our imagination is what helps us discern patterns that, we attach meaning to. And when those patterns are absent, meaning is also then either up for grabs or absent. You know, I feel like 
I don't know, do you have at all a sense that, that there's kind of a pendulum swinging in culture in terms of uh, this, this atheistic worldview? I, I feel like that's, I've had conversations with so many who just aren't really satisfied with the, the storylessness mm. of that. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. That there's just something about being a human that, that compels us to story and to see meaning mm. in these patterns as leading to somewhere and, mm-hmm. and and that's devoid in 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 just a world without meaning. Yeah. Have you have you seen yeah. that or experienced that at all? Yeah, I absolutely like. I, there's a sort of kind of primal emptiness to the the current conversations within atheism. There's no sort of cohesive narrative. My husband, when I first met him as a student at Wheaton, was basically on the brink of giving up his faith. And he, he kind of had realized, well, he had two choices. He could stay a Christian or he could he would have to be an existentialist. Like there were really no other options for him. Um, he didn't ascribe to any other belief system. And it was really the resurrection that, you know, as a scientific fact or situation that he was having a hard time embracing. And eventually, through reading the Chronicles of Narnia, actually, he realized, you know, I, I could be an existentialist, but there's no hope in that for mm. for me becoming a better person or the world becoming a better place. And I can't live without hope. So I'm choosing to be a Christian, even though I'm full of doubt and uncertainty. And that's something that Madeline Lingle said a lot, too. Faith isn't the absence of doubt. It's the presence of uncertainty <laughs> and yet pressing forward anyway for my husband it was the moment in um, the silver chair where puddle glum oh, yeah, um, yeah. and the children are underground and the witch is trying to keep them there by insisting that everything they imagined about the overworld was just imagined and that her world is the only world they imagine a sun because they see a lamp and think oh wouldn't it be cool to have a bigger and brighter lamp and we'll call it the sun and um, eventually Puddle Glum is like, okay, enough of this. So let's say everything we've imagined is, is false. Well, it's a way better than what you've got down here. And so pardon us while we leave and go look for an overworld that probably doesn't exist, but we're going to be Narnians even if there is no Narnia. So see hmm. you later. And that changed my husband's life. Hmm. Oh, and it, and it, because, because it's, it was it it was it's what happens <laughs> it's mm. like at a certain point you either c- claim not a line of text on a page about what to believe or not but you're claiming your home country mm. and you have a kind of vision of what that is and that's where the that's the holy spirit tugging on your heart in ways that you may not even be able to express in words mm. But sometimes oh, it's the imagination that unlocks that door. Ooh, I love that. That's so good. Oh, <laughs> tearing up over here <laughs> talking about Narnia. <laughs> well, and how gracious God is, hmm. right? How loving and wonderful to bypass all of our human objections to things and say, hmm. if I can use a donkey, doggone it. To to steer my people, to talk to my people. I, I can use whatever I want to use <laughs> to bring you back to me. 
What Amen. a gracious God. And, and I think that in some levels, like we do have to be cautious and pay attention to where, what are the narratives that we've adopted and where do they come from? Mm. Um, have we really been listening enough to Christians who have been on the underside of power and read the gospels and the, and the scriptures through that lens? Because the entire Bible, with the exception of maybe first and second Chronicles and first and second Kings was drafted by people and, and created and told by people on the underside of power. Mm -hmm. And so if we fail to read it through that lens, then we are missing a huge part of the meaning of it. Because people on the underside of power, Christians from the black community, for instance, are reading with a different lens that allows them to see meaning in suffering, for instance. That white Christians will often be like, um, suffering is somehow proof that we've sinned. And Christians on the underside of power would be like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? what are you talking about? <laughs> um, that's not how I read the Bible. So, um, and certainly not when we believe in a, a savior who suffered and died. So, you know, like <laughs> we have, we have, we do have to investigate where our narrative frameworks come from and what meaning we ascribe to things um, and where does that meaning come from? How is it mm. shaped potentially by maybe it's sort of homogenous communities we've, we've inhabited, right? Sarah, towards the end of a God hungry, the God hungry imagination, you, you talk about something you call imaginative intelligence. I really love that. Can you describe mm -hmm. what that is and, and maybe think about how we can foster that capacity in our mm -hmm. students? Mm -hmm. um, well, the, the sort of theory of multiple intelligences has been out there for a while. And in some ways it's been debunked. <laughs> so since I wrote my book, it, it isn't always well received, but it's this idea that that some of us learn in different ways than just sort of book learning. And, um, and so some kids, you know, really respond when their bodies are moving, they tend to learn that way. Or some kids respond to visual engagement. Some kids respond to music and auditory um, experiences. And so there's a variety of ways that, that children learn and people learn. And, I, in, I think it's in the appendices of that book. I make, I make the case that like, okay, so if we ascribe to this concept of multiple intelligences and try to pedagogically engage children and young people um, on these a variety of ways, why not consider the imagination and engaging the imagination as one of those? Because there are going to be students like I was who respond to that. And I mean, for so for here, here's a really great example. When I was in ninth grade, my family moved from New York State to back to Michigan, and I vividly remember that we that my ninth grade teacher was in the process of reading aloud a tale of two cities by Charles Dickens to the class, and she would pick it up like at ten minutes at the end of the class, she would read a little further and a little further and a little further, but then I had to move away. <laughs> and I'm not joking like three or four years ago I was like you know what I never did find out what happened <laughs> oh that's so good she had left me hanging back in 1988 
<laughs> and I wanted to know how it ended. And I had never actually like been like, oh, I actually should finish that story. So I sat down as a grown up and I finished it. And I knew where we had left off. Oh, wow. And so, so she was engaging students in the class like myself for whom the imagination is a doorway to learning. It was probably the key doorway for me to learning. And think about it, like 30 odd years later, I remember, and it wasn't a lesson that she was giving us. She was just reading aloud. I think that's so true in church, right? If, if you oh, were to ask me totally. the, the five points or three points from last week's sermon, I would just have no idea. But if yeah. you, yeah. I, I remember so vividly stories my, my pastor told from the pulpit when I was six or seven yes. years old. Yes. Yep. I mean, and Jesus knew this in the way that he told his parables. He didn't always, sometimes if people directly asked him, he would summarize the point of them or explain the meaning, but not always. Hmm. Um, there's many of them that he doesn't come back and say, okay, so the three points of this and my <laughs> thesis, he, he didn't do that. Like he trusted the Holy Spirit to work in the imagination of his listeners over time hmm. to keep mulling over especially if it bothered them to keep mm. mulling it over and mulling it over and mulling it over. I love your definition of Im imaginative intelligence. You say the intuitive ability to discover and express meaningful relationships and patterns between other, otherwise unconnected ideas, mm. images, and experiences, mm. or the ability to put things together. Yeah. Oh, it's so, so true. And that's what Jesus is very much inviting his listeners to do with the stories mm -hmm. he gives them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so Sarah, you, you talk a lot about the, the goal for young people is not just to appreciate the gospel, but actually to live into the story God is telling. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what does it look like for a student to, to actually inhabit the story God is telling? Mm -hmm. um, well, I'll tell you a story. Perfect. <laughs> and it really, it really is one of those moments where, little children will lead us. So we are driving to church and we're really in a rush. My husband, who's a pastor, is like, I got to get there. I got to get there. And we pass a woman whose car is broken down on the side of the road and keeps going. And a little voice from a child in the back seat says, um, are aren't we going to stop and help her? <laughs> and all of a sudden, <laughs> um, we are inside of a parable and we have the opportunity to end up on the right side of that parable or not. <laughs> are you going to be late to worship because you chose to be on the right side of that parable or not? And often it's because children have had the chance to live inside of one of those parables themselves that, that they call us out. And that's called living the scriptures. I mean, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And it's not just the incisive statements of truth in scripture. It's the stories themselves. Sarah, we're running low on time. Can you tell us about any projects you're working on currently? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm just recently uh, was offered a contract for a book called Parenting in the Apocalypse, Eight Hopeful <laughs> Habits, <laughs> Eight Hopeful Habits for an Uncertain Future. And I originally outlined the book when I was a recent cancer survivor. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2018. But of course, it is now a very pertinent <laughs> concept yeah, no kidding, for right? basically That's... every parent right now. <laughs> so mm. we are all going through, and I say apocalypse kind of tongue in cheek, but the word apocalypse means to reveal or a revelation. And there are lots of things that are being revealed in our lives right now and in our mm. nation. So say the subtitle again. So, yeah, eight it's hopeful. eight hopeful habits for an uncertain future. Mm. Oh, I love that. I'm excited. So you're just, you're, you're, are you just starting to write that? Yeah, yep, that I've drafted. Or not yet? Yeah, so when I pitched the book, we had I had drafted some of the opening material, but I've got eight chapters to write about eight hopeful yeah, habits. Like, so. uh, <laughs> It'll come uh, out in the fall. It'll come out fall of 2021. Sarah, this is a blast. I'm so grateful for your time. And I know we've just had a few interactions, but I always walk away feeling like, ah, oh, that, was, that was all. I just want to dream and think and write all the rest of the day. And Thank you so much. This has been delightful. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure you subscribe to the Lighting a Fire podcast so you don't miss an episode. As always, feel free to email me with questions or ideas at bruss, B-R-U-S-S, at hollandchristian.org. In partnership with Christian Schools International, this is Lighting a Fire.